Welcome to Sculpture Vulture. I'm Lucy Branch, a sculptural conservator and author, bringing you a series of interviews with some amazing sculptors who inspire me and I hope will do the same for you. You can see the photographs accompanying the interview, the episode show notes and get a free novel from sculpturevulture.co.uk. Hello Sculpture Vultures and thank you for joining me today. My household is just getting out of some COVID madness, with two out of three of my kids getting it. It's felt a bit like being on a sinking ship, but I'm glad to report that we still seem to be afloat. Though, as my pessimistic son keeps reminding me, only as yet. In Sculpture News, friend of the show, Amy Goodman, was kind enough to contact me and say how much she'd enjoyed Eve Shepherd's interview recently, and that there was a lot of what Eve had said that really resonated with her. I do encourage you to go back and listen to Eve's episode if you haven't. I think it was a really great one, and it's well worth your time. Amy has unveiled her memorial to the Gurkhas recently in Prince's Gardens in Aldershot and there's some really lovely images if you like to if you like military sculpture on Instagram Amy's page is Amy Sculptor 1 and she chose a pose that must have been incredibly challenging to make where one of the soldiers is carrying another over his shoulder and you can really see that Amy She's just challenging herself all the time at the moment with every work that she does because when you contrast them, you see what what her personality makes of each subject. And I I loved the really feisty galloping Arborfield horses. And then there's also, you know, this tough military figures that have been put in place and then there's also this really sweet little Florence Nightingale bust that she's made and it's been opened in Gunhill Park in Aldershot. Aldershot seems to be getting all the sculptures at the moment so at the rate she's producing she's making me feel really bad because it only goes to remind me that I need to get my finger out and start creating something new because actually 2022 is it's almost in sight. Today we're talking to Laurie Dizengremel and before telling you all about the fabulous things that she's done, I have to say that Laurie was such a good sport because the first time I recorded her, the entire production and backup recording failed and so she's had to repeat this recording which must be very tedious for her but she did it with such good grace and it only gave me more evidence if I needed it of what fantastic people sculptors are. Laurie has done so many fascinating projects, there's far too many to list, but those you may have come across include a public sculpture of Capability Brown, Tony Byrne, the Olympic boxing medalist located in Drogheda, which is where I first discovered Laurie, and Sir George Carteret in St Peter's, Jersey. She has a very pretty entry in the Emily Williamson campaign, and... You can still vote for your favourite sculptors up until the 14th of November at emilywilliamsonstatue.com. I began our conversation today by asking how sculpture first came into her life. You know, you probably hear my American accent and yet I'm the most American-sounding French person you'll ever meet. So when I was 
a baby. I was exported to the U.S. from Paris, but then I was re-imported to France when I was six. And from then on, of course, walking through Paris every day, going to school, growing up, you know, age six, seven, eight, nine, etc. I'm I'm in Paris and I'm seeing the most amazing sculptures everywhere. Through in the in the gardens of the Tuileries in Trocadéro around Notre Dame, whether it's in architectural form, so caryatides and and columns that support buildings or that adorn buildings, whether it's in reliefs uh, that are on walls, whether it's in carvings that are inside buildings, or whether it's just in freestanding format, as in sculptures here and there. And of course, the huge amount of public art that there is, but also the huge amount of collection art there is in, in the museums and stuff. So I had parents who were incredibly inquisitive artistically, and they would drag me or take me. But, you know, most kids, you don't have to, you have to drag them, perhaps. A lot of kids, you might have to drag them. But with me, it was sort of definitely not a drag. I really, really loved going to museums. My mom was Dutch, so we would also go to Holland and visit museums there. And I was very fortunate in that back in, so, you know, I'm 67 now. So back in the day, I'm 14, going to places like Russia and visiting the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg and and in Moscow, and, you know, just art, you know, here and there and everywhere. So sculpture was always a part of it. And that was seeing it was a very important thing. And then the other part of that was a book that I read, an amazing book by Pearl, Pearl Buck, uh, who was an American author. And she wrote a lot about Asia because she had her parents were missionaries in China. But one book she wrote, which actually was staged in, in the States, where a young woman discovers clay and becomes a sculptor. And it, and the book is called A Proud Heart. And that book was just a total eye-opener for me. The, the way in which the relationship of this woman to clay and then to stone was just amazing. So there's that's your answer. That's how sculpture came into my life. <laughs> the doing came a lot later. I, I, I actually thought I was going to be a dancer, a writer, uh, you know, a playwright, a poet. Uh, th- there were so many different art forms that pulled me. And it wasn't, I had no clue that I would turn my hand to sculpture. Uh, and then one day, quite late, really, I was not quite pregnant with my first child. I'm sort of 24, maybe, uh, living in L.A. at that point, having having left France to come to the States to visit the States and then having stayed a bit. And there I am. And suddenly my husband at the time said, Hey, Laurie, you've always talked about sculpture and how much you think it's, you know, a wonderful art form. And we have a sculptor who's just hired a building that he had developed. You know, it was an old firehouse, an old firehouse in Venice, California. And this is before Venice became a a hip place. It was when it was not a hip place. And, um, that was it. You know, I, I, I said, wow, that sounds interesting. A sculptor, is she going to give classes? Yes, it's going to be a school. Cool. I went along. I put my hands on some clay. And it was as if I were coming home. 
Gosh, isn't it strange that where, you know, you see it with often with children, though, when they, they pick up music and they just feel like they've come home, you know, that, that familiarity with something that they couldn't, you know, they haven't done before. Yeah. I mean, Lucy, you, your, your life is also sculpture in a funny, you know, we, you're a sculptor conservator and, and you, you love all things sculpture and I love all things sculpture and it's, it's my passion. I, I love all art forms. I find, I'm, I find them all intriguing and interesting, but sculpture was where I found my happy place. And, and it literally was as if I had done it previously, you know, I, I don't want to sound mystical or anything, but if one ever were to believe in past lives, then for sure it was as if I had done it before, that, that type of feeling. And I very rapidly became, uh, acquired a certain amount of proficiency. I'm not, I'm not saying that I became instantly brilliant at it or anything like that, but it was definitely something that didn't take me long to pick up. And also because it, because I loved it so much, it was sort of like, it never is work. You know, I, for example, I can't imagine myself ever retiring from being a sculptor. I will not retire. I will die being a sculptor. Uh, the only way that I would retire from being a sculptor would be if my hands got so messed up that I couldn't continue making it, then, then of course, that would be, you know, limiting. But then I would probably start just writing poetry full time <laughs> instead. <laughs> well, it is quite, it's quite hard on the body being a, especially large scale sculpture. Oh, yeah. You have to, oh, yeah. you know, continuously maintain yourself, I find anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've already had double carpal tunnel surgery on both hands, you know, both hands. And, you know, I have pain in my hands all the time. But I think that at the age of 67, having made sculptures since I was 24, you know, that's a bit normal, really. Uh, or I mean, I don't know if it's normal, but it's, it's, it's to be expected, let me say, shall we say. You, and so was uh, it the sculpture school that you stayed at and continued to train at? Or did you go elsewhere? Well, so it, so so this was like a private small school, the um, Venice Sculpture Studio, and interestingly, the woman who ran that, Martine Vogel, she was half French and half American, and so we had a lot in common immediately in a funny sort of way. And even though I wasn't half American, I wasn't American at all, but I, because I had lived in America, there was a you know an American sort of predisposition, so shall we say. But the thing is that Martine said to me that she had been trained by someone who had been trained by someone who had been trained by Rodin. Well, that's an, an amazing legacy to think that I have been also trained by someone who has been trained by someone who has been trained by Rodin. And I know that when I was doing my first uh, public commission for a town in, in France, and I was asked to make a portrait of Jean Jaurès, who was a French politician, assassinated in 1914. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking photographs that I find in the National Library, and I'm taking all sorts of visual references uh, as my guide to make the sculpture of this dead man. And basically, it's a journey of discovery, isn't it? When you're, when you're, when you're portraying someone, you're like, who is this person? Why do they deserve to be? memorialized as a, as a, in, a, in a in sculpture format and who is this and 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 how should I how should I portray him differently to how he's been portrayed before and so forth here I am making this sculpture of this famous politician and at that point all I've had is a few months of workshops 
back in California a few years before. I started then to be interested in acquiring more training. So I, I was very lucky to be allowed to attend a metal studio at the Beaux-Arts in Paris for a year, which wasn't really continuing on what I'd done before, because what I'd done before was mainly clay work, uh, although I had done a bit of foundry work also in order to cast some of my first pieces. I actually went and uh, worked in a foundry for a, a very short period of time in L.A. But so here I am in Paris at the Atelier de Métal of Monsieur Perrin, and I'm like learning to do welding and also exploring patinations on bronze, which I found fascinating and, and, and useful in later later work. So that was a bit of formal training, but it wasn't really that formal because I was already, quote unquote, a mature student. And I was not a registered student to the Beaux-Arts. I was just a, a student of Monsieur Perrin's. So then uh, it wasn't until I was much, much later and I had done sculptures already all over the world as a guest of the United Nations, etc. And then I decided having I was often giving lectures in China, being invited to big symposium big symposia there and I people kept saying so what's your training you know where were you trained etc and I'm like mm, I haven't got a degree you know I've got I haven't got a sculpture to a fine art degree at all and then I decided that I should go and remedy that really and I went and applied for an uh, a master's of fine art international practice degree at the University of Canterbury not the University of Canterbury so the uh, but in Canterbury at the college what was it called it was called the creative college of something anyway sorry university of the creative arts in canterbury i applied for this mfa two-year mfa thing and i find it interesting because the only people there who could really help me further with sculpture were the technicians there was no there was no sculpture teacher no sculptor professor my the, the person who led the class was a printmaker and the only other person that we had a little bit of interaction with was this one single theory lady professor who, of course, was trying to get everyone into a little postmodernist format where a sculpture isn't really the dumb thing, certainly not a figurative sculpture and uh, not the classical figurative sculpture. And I was encouraged to go anywhere but to figurative sculpture when I was doing that MFA. Uh, so I tried all sorts of other stuff. But of course, I came back to sculpture when it came to doing the final coursework and the final uh, degree work and made my artists of the Silk Road, which were portraying the unknown artists who created all the amazing artwork on the Silk Road in China. So when you go to caves and see cave upon cave of full of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and, and other types of sculpture and when you see you know one huge fresco mural of, after another you wonder who made those artworks and you don't know and my degree coursework ended up being focused on portraying imaginary artists the thing is that it's such a funny thing isn't it how you're already doing it you were already being a professional sculptress by the sound of it and yet because of that lack of formal training, we, we kind of think, oh, no, I must need that. But it, it sounds like really you didn't. It sounds like it, it was a good opportunity to explore things, perhaps that you wouldn't have explored. But actually, there was 
there was no teacher that could teach you to be a professional because you were one. Yeah, I was definitely professional. And I felt also that within the in the context of academia, I had to put food on the table my whole life. I've had to put table food on the table from the time I was out of, out of basic high school. I did my baccalaureate. And after that, I had to put food on the table for myself. And when I started to put food on the table solely with sculpture was in 2001, about that. And actually just 1999, 2000, 2001. And from then until now, that is how I have put food on the table. And I continue to have to put food on the table with it because, you know, you have to live. And and life is expensive, let's face it. Uh, yeah. And, and what I found very interesting is that in the, in, in the context of academia, fine art academia, it's a bit like a bit dirty to talk about being professional and making money. <laughs> You know, it's very interesting because it shouldn't be that way. You know, I feel like it's quite really wrong to train people to be in the fine arts with a view to you must only research and you must only contextualize your practice and you must only think and mentally masturbate about your work and 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 thinking about making a buck with it or a pound uh, or a you know a, a euro is wrong. And actually that is not so. It, sh- it should not be so. Artists who end up never making a piece of art after they've left art school abound. There's no other field in the world where that applies and yet it does somehow in art and art-related it, fields. It, it really it's, and you can tell that your success is because you have an entrepreneurial spirit something has burned inside you. Maybe it's the fact that you had practical things to do. You had to feed the family and you had to make ends meet. But but that has opened doors for you and given you opportunities. And that's the thing I, I, I find utterly bizarre. How artists who haven't been taught to think like that don't realise that actually thinking like that is what can make you more successful. There, sh- there should be nothing wrong with being... You can be an artist and you can make money with it. And, you know, there's no glory in being an artist behind closed doors where no one knows where to find you. Talk a bit more about China, because this seems to feature heavily in your career. And it's quite interesting. It, it's not just about the money. It's not just about it being cheap, I can tell. Yeah, well, far from it. I mean, I, I actually use the one of the top foundries in China, Ai Weiwei casts his work. Uh, his stuff that he did for the UN in New York and stuff like that, it, it was all cast at this foundry that I use. And I have a great relationship with the foundry manager. I mean, I actually stay with him and his wife. Their daughter calls me, you know, Aunt Laurie in Chinese. <laughs> um, but, you know, it he, he was an interesting character because he had nothing to do with sculpture and foundries, uh, was working at the American embassy, I believe, for many years in uh, Chengdu, and that his father had a foundry, and his father father uh, died, and he was called upon to succeed him at the foundry. So came from being sort of an interpreter or whatever he was at the American embassy to now being par- partner in a very large foundry, uh, very successful foundry. I mean, they do gigantic people, um, as well as very fine, small people. They cast my, yeah, they, they cast my, my Lancelot Capability Brown, um, and they cast a few other pieces that I've done for various places. You know, I, I, I will cast wherever uh, wherever I can. I've cast in Montana. I've cast in, 
in Dublin. I've cast in Paris. I've cast in Toulouse recently because, you know, because of the pandemic, I was stuck in France for part of the time, which was not a bad thing. But I'm just saying I had to then adapt and, and I've adapted to whatever foundry I have to. But when I first uh, was invited to China to a sculpture symposium in 2001, I met an amazing young woman who quite a bit younger than I, there were five women sculptors and 45, you know, male sculptors, not an unusual ratio at a, at a sculpture symposium. And uh, she and I became friends and that friendship then led me to, you know, that foundry, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I have spent over three years in China. If you put the time together here, here a month, here a month, there are two months, Etc. Since 2001, I've spent over three years in China. The projects that you make happen, because I know you're quite an unusual sculptress in the sense that uh, you don't always just do commissions that are put out there. You make commissions happen by by saying we need a sculpture for this. Do you choose to do it in China? Uh, sometimes I choose to do it in China. Sometimes I'm told, you know, there was a committee in Wales a few years ago who said, well, you know, we, we, we need you to make it in, in, in Great Britain. We, we don't, you know, we don't want it to be made in China. And also, frankly, their timeline was so quick. Like, it was one of those situations where they called me in January and said, we have to have the money spent by March. I'm not quite sure how that works, but you know how there's financial years and all this other stuff. And if you have, I suppose, I suppose if you have raised the funds for a public artwork, and it somehow needs to come out of the public purse by, you know, before the financial year is over or something like that. I'm not quite sure how that all works, but that's how they, rep, you know, they, that's kind of how they explained it to me. And the, the sculptor that they had planned on using had fallen through. I was actually their second choice and, and I had been informed a few months before. It was a competition, one of those competition things for, you know, and we'd been three shortlisted sculptors and I had been informed that I hadn't made it. You know, this other guy had made it, but then, this other guy raised his price at the last minute so terrifically that they were like, oops, we can't do that anymore because that's not how much we've got. So they then remembered that they had liked me as well as much. And also that I was had said that I could do it more cheaply, regardless of where I made it, whether I made it in England, which that one I ended up cast in the Midlands. It's not just in China that I cast. I cast wherever wherever it is. Uh, right for me to cast. Tell us a little bit, Laurie, about uh, how you make these projects happen, because I think that's a really interesting business model. I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, A few years ago, I decided, about 11 years ago, I decided that I wanted to um, possibly do a PhD that would be focused on artist-led initiatives. So me as a sculptor going and, you know, drumming up work, basically, uh, getting work to work to happen. And interestingly enough, I was about to start doing that PhD. I was going to do an, um, uh, start with an MRes leading to a PhD at the University of Lincoln in the Midlands. And then I was like, you know, this is silly. I don't be, need to be doing another degree. I just need to be doing this. And I literally called five stately homes in the Midlands and offered myself to each one of them as somebody who could give them free advice to create a sculpture trail on their grounds. 
And the sculpture trail wasn't going to consist of just my sculptures. It was going to consist of sculptures by a whole bunch of sculptors from around the world or from around the UK, if, if that's how they preferred to play it. So I made those calls and I left messages in some on some occasions because it was just a, you know, there'd be a, a mail voicemail thing. And it, interestingly, out of the five stately homes that I called, I got five calls back within 24 hours, you know? So that was an, an example of me initiating something. Now, out of those five, the first one that I went to see was the Duchess of Rutland at Beaver Castle. And she likes to tell her story that I came knocking at the back door. I didn't come knocking at the back door. I, I called a message. <laughs> and one of her PAs picked up the picked up the message, went and told uh, Emma, the Duchess, um, your grace, you know, the sculptor has called and is offering to you know, to to meet you and, and give you some some free consultancy, perhaps about a sculpture trail. And Emma said, you know, make an appointment for her. So I had an appointment, you know, 48 hours after that first phone call, I was on my way to meet the Duchess of Rutland. And I arrived there and she wasn't interested in the sculpture trail, not really. What she was interested in is me creating the busts of her five children. And then later, possibly a bust of herself and 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 of of the duke um i ended up doing the five children i ended up doing the duchess uh i didn't end up doing the duke's portrait but they all are another layer of art in that amazingly that amazing venue which is laden with history and has portraits by joshua reynolds and george stubbs on the walls so, you know, I've added another layer of history to that castle, you know, and, and of, of art to that castle, which is really cool. And all by being brave, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I decided years ago that I had to be that kind of brave in order to survive if I wanted to survive as an artist and that it was okay to do it, that it wasn't dirty, dirty, quote unquote dirty, you know, to to, to promote and to seek work. And through that residency because I've been artist in residence now I thought it was going to last a year that artist you know the artist residence at Beaver Castle and I'm still I'm still at it you know I give her I give I give her grace five percent of my time a year not more I do lots of other work but I continue to do sculptures for her for the estate and you know I made a pair of gigantic steel horses I've done life-size stag and life-size horses several horses and uh, and I've enjoyed it tremendously, and it's been fun. And I've also had occasion to meet a lot of her guests. She has guests who are from all walks of life, uh, who come to visit the castle or shoot on the estate or whatever they do for various reasons. And and you know, people commission me to do their wife their their wife's portrait or to to do their you know girlfriend's dog portrait, you know, or whatever. And I'm grateful for the work. So the Emily Williamson competition, tell us a little bit about your entry for it. Um, yeah, I was approached by the guy who spearheads the project, Andrew Simcock. He's a councillor for Didsbury in Manchester. And he uh, read an article in a national newspaper uh, at the time when was when there was the furore last year on regarding the Mary Wollstonecraft statue. Uh, the Maggie, Maggie, yeah, Maggie Hamlin. And there was an article in which it was discussed how one, whether it was 
questionably in good taste or or the right thing to do to portray a woman of achievement such as Mary Wollstonecraft uh, as a you know nude. And one of the projects being made at the time was my uh, sculpture of Virginia Woolf seated on a bench, and she's got clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> she's got clothes on excellent uh, which, which is very which is very seemly actually and, and quite right um you don't portray a feminist icon with no clothes I think that was in my opinion you know she, Maggie Maggie made a choice and it wasn't in my opinion the right choice but that's that's fine I mean it's not I'm not dissing her work as a fellow sculptor generally but that was in my opinion just not the right call for a feminine to portray a feminist icon at any rate, with Emily Williamson, it was a very interesting request from Andrew because he asked me, would I take part in the competition? And I was like, oh, gosh, really? I hate competitions. I think com- competitions are great when it comes to sports and things like that. When it comes to art, yeah, not, I'm, not, I'm not feeling it generally. I, I don't like it, you know, because you look at the four entries for the Emily Williamson that have been made by myself and the other three sculptors, Claire Abbott and Billy Bond and Eve Shepard. And every one of them has merit. And, you know, my money's on Eve, but that's just because I think that she really was so clever with her concept of the skirt. Yeah. Dissolving into a cliff faces and, 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 and in the folds of it, all these like, you know, birds that are either endangered or not endangered, but either way, like birds, it was so clever. You know, every one of us portrayed Emily with a bird in some way, you know, bird in hand or a bird close to, you know. But but putting that many of them in her in her composition was absolutely brilliant. So of course I still nurture some hope that it could be that I might get picked, but uh because you know, again, I gotta put food on the table. Uh, but I think Eve Eve Eve's is remarkable. But I also think that every one of us put a lot of thought and research and all that stuff into it. They all portray Emily Williamson. And she, you know, it, this is another opportunity to redress the imbalance of female and male statuary. Was there a particular aspect of the story that inspired your entry? I think that for me, I just wanted the simplicity of, the brief was it had to look like her and there's only one picture. Now having only one picture isn't the end of the world because, you know, with capability Brown, there were two paintings, you know, and I had to choose one. Uh, There was one in in the national portrait gallery and one in a private collection with Emily Williamson. There's this one photograph. So it's got to look like her. That's it. That's, that's a given. And then, you know, her main, the, the main reason why she is being celebrated here is for her 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 work to found uh, to to enact the Plumage Act, which had to do with you know getting rid of the the, the the despicable trade of having to kill tons and tons and tons of birds solely for their feathers. We're not talking about birds that you you know have lunch on afterwards, and you know the feathers are occasionally used on a hat. We're talking about birds of all types exotic birds you would never dream of eating tiny ones etc so it was it was it, what she did was a remarkable thing and she deserves to be portrayed and what i felt was i just wanted to show her as i saw her from that one photograph 
showing a relationship. The communication is quite simple. It's it, the communication is between her and that bird, and and hopefully then the viewer uh, is intrigued and goes, "Ooh, what's this about?" Then you know, who's this and why is it here? And then they learn more about the history and and so forth. Oh, Laurie, you've been really, really fantastic to talk to today. I appreciate it so much. We wish you all the best with the campaign. Who knows who's going to get it? It's going to be really interesting to find out. I loved Laurie's description of her first meeting with Clay, of coming home. It's just such a strange idea that things that we've never come across in our lives could be familiar. And not that we're necessarily outstanding at them the very moment that we start them that's definitely not the case but but that sense that we want to keep returning to them like reminds me of that lovely scene uh, by Kenneth Graham in The Wind of the Willows when Mole sniffs home and despite his very exciting much more exciting life with Ratty than he had he just can't tear himself away from it Now, Laurie has lived quite the international life. Casting and working anywhere in the world doesn't seem to faze her at all. Possibly that's an element of her upbringing, but the whole world is her playground. (laughs) Though it actually sounds quite James Bond when I put it like that, it's actually quite a brilliant business strategy to think so epically big. She didn't mention in her chat today, but if you look on her website, she has taken the time to forge relationships and make agents all over the world. She's marketed herself globally, and I'm sure that projects trickle in from all sorts of directions because of that time she took to do that. And I just, I really love this idea of casting your net so wide as a creative in any industry. You can sometimes feel daunted at the idea of just getting established. But when you think of how many people there are in the world, the maths plays more in your favour. For me, I like to think of how many English speakers there are in the world. So I may not be selling in the UK like Dan Brown. But there are places all over the world that speak English and people who are buying my books all over the world. And there'll be people looking for your exact kind of sculpture, maybe not necessarily in the village next door to where you live, but certainly when you look as wide as the whole world. She's a very practical soul, Laurie. Her art is important to her, absolutely no doubt, but she has had to put food on the table and so she's had to make it pay. Now, this is a lovely conundrum. Has she done as well as she has because her art speaks to people? Or has she done so well because she's made people listen? I think there's no doubt that her need to be entrepreneurial has meant that she has driven opportunities towards her and this has established her, enabled her to pay her bills but also to grow as a sculptor. You can't help but grow when you have so many different variety of projects from different cultures all being offered to you. She's reminded me how important it is to create and market, much as many of us prefer to do one a lot more than the other. They are the yin and yang of success. And it's clear to see that Laurie 
is blazing that trail. Please support the podcast in one of three different ways. You can pick up one of my novels about the dark side of the art world. Or if you prefer a dash of murder in your fiction, there's this year's novel, Restoration Murder, which is out now. Or finally, you can tell someone about an episode that you've enjoyed and got value from, which will bring more people into our tribe of sculpture vultures. Next week, I'll be interviewing Peter Newman on the podcast. Peter has exhibited in Trafalgar Square, the Royal Festival Hall and the Hayward Gallery in London, the Turner Contemporary in Margate and the Guggenheim Museum in Venice, one of my favourite places. His work can be found all over the world in public and private collections. Be inspired by sculpture with Peter Newman. If you're looking for a new book, please consider one of my novels about the dark side of the art world, where sculpture is always at the heart of the story. You can get them on the show website, on the usual online retailers, or even better, keep your local library alive, ask for them in there. Thank you for joining me today. Sculpture Vulture has been brought to you by Antique Bronze.